there, it's Kimberly, and I want to invite you to check out the upcoming virtual Licensed Scrum Master for Nonprofits course. It's offered by Agile in Nonprofits. The course starts on July the 27th. 2020 in just five mornings from the comfort of your own desk with the support of the DH Leonard consulting team you'll become a licensed scrum master if you are scrum curious check out agile in nonprofits.com all one word agile in nonprofits.com hello I'm Kimberly Hayes de Muga and I'm Amanda Day. And you are listening to Season 3 of the Fundraising Heyday Podcast. This podcast is brought to you by our Season 3 sponsor, D.H. Leonard Consulting and Grant Writing Services. Hey, don't let grants stress you out. Their team can help you with grant readiness and training, grant research, grant writing, and grant mock review. Did you know that with every Fundraising Heyday episode, we create a coordinating blog post on their website, dhleonardconsulting.com. Check it out today. And y'all, this is usually the time when we would hop into, oh, we're doing this and we're doing that. Listen, just we'll be back with our regularly scheduled program later, but today's very, very special episode features an interview with the Nagoski sisters who wrote a fantastic book, but it's so much more. There, please listen to every minute. You will not waste your time. Yeah, our normal episodes center around 30 minutes. We do that on purpose because that's about the typical commute time, typical time to get a few chores knocked out, about the time people exercise, so people can listen to it on the run. Today's episode is an hour, but that's because we were blessed with a fantastic conversation with Amelia and Emily, and we just didn't want to break it up. We nope. didn't want to stop them from talking. Um, and it wasn't just talking. You know how we break into song? Oh, um, no, no. These are trained professionals. Go. I mean, yes. it even made me like Disney for a little bit. And that's big. <laughs> that's that's big. That's big because I'm not a fan. And just at me all you want. But anyway, well, I just, it, well. There were sections that brought tears to both of our oh, eyes. There's oh. lessons learned. There's stories told. There's I just cannot tell you how excited Kimberly and I were just to have a few minutes to sit down and talk to him. The only thing that would have made it better if it could have been in person. But true that. Um, but you know, still COVID, social distancing. Plus, they live way north in Massachusetts, and we're way down south in Georgia. So, um, but yeah, this is just can't begin to say. What an incredible interview this was, and we hope you really enjoy. Thanks, and happy listening. Today's topic and special guests are coming to you during a time of global pandemic, severe economic downturn, and worldwide ongoing protests against the brutal treatment of African Americans and systemic racism. So what we're going to be discussing today is sadly more important than ever before. It really is. And in our podcast, we're committed to exploring the technical aspects of fundraising and grant writing and trends and opinions of industry leaders. And that will continue. But today we want to discuss how to stay strong without flaming out under all the pressures and stressors we all feel right now. We have daydreamed about interviewing Emily and Amelia Nagoski months ago after reading their book, Burnout, The Secret to Solving the Stress Cycle, which was a pick for our monthly book club about a year or so ago. Mm -hmm. 
So many of our listeners, like us, have chosen high-pressure, high-stakes work. No, we're not firefighters or trauma surgeons or public school teachers, but we're people, majority of which are women, who are working to connect funding to good work that makes the world a better place. And when donors decline to give and grant proposals fail to secure the funding, needed things don't happen, and people may even lose their jobs. So on that super positive note, I know, it's a fun, fun career. Doesn't everybody want to be a grant writer now? Oh, no pressure. <laughs> so um, again, we're thrilled to have Emily and Amelia Nagoski with us for this episode. And before we get started, I just normally I don't read a lot of things out loud. As Amanda will tell you, I'm usually free forming or doing something kind of scarily off script. But I really loved their bios, and I really want to share them right now. So um, this is how Emily Nagoski titled her bio page um, at unrulywellness.com, up, up at the top. Writer, educator, researcher, activist, nerd. And Welcome to the club. Oh, my people. <laughs> so um, Emily is a PhD, a sex educator and author of Come As You Are, The Surprising New Science That Will Transform Your Sex Life. Her job is to travel all over the world, pandemic permitting, of course, training therapists, medical professionals, college students, and the general public about the science of women's sexual well-being. And her sister, Amelia, um, her degree is DMA. It stands for Doctorate of Musical Arts. And she is Associate Professor and Coordinator of Music at Western New England University. And this is what she wrote. This is not me, but I love this. Her job is to run around waving her arms and making funny noises and generally doing whatever it takes to help singers get in touch with their internal experience. So in that way, they continued writing, her work is very much like Emily's. Emily's um, degrees are in, master's degree rather is in counseling and Amelia's is in choral conducting. One day they realized they both got graduate degrees in how to listen and feel feelings, which maybe says something about their shared childhood. They, <laughs> I don't know, maybe. They both live in Western Massachusetts with a variety of cats, dogs, and spouses. And they go on to finish with, yes, they're twins. Yes, they're identical. Yes, one time they pretended to be each other. <laughs> it did not go well. <laughs> so welcome, Emily and Amelia. We're so glad to have you. Hey, We're so glad to be here. <laughs> so one of the biggest aha moments that I had when I was reading Burnout, Solve the Stress Cycle, was about the actual physical and biological effects of the stress cycle and how addressing that was key to healing. I was pretty much from the school of, you know, don't talk about it, distract yourself, go do something else until you feel better. And that's the way it works. And the book is just very eloquently and concisely uh, took me to school on that. And I learned a lot about how that was a erroneous perception of mine. <laughs> so it, I, and then again, you really should, if you're listening, you really should read this book. But what I would love is that if you could give us just maybe a thumbnail of that stress cycle and how you have to close it, because I think Amanda and I would both agree that that was brand new territory for us. 
Yes. Oh, definitely. So this is Emily. Um, and uh, it was news to Amelia, too, about 15 years ago, uh, which is why she ended up in the hospital with stress-induced inflammation. She was right. in the hospital for four days. And I brought her a stack of peer-reviewed research because I'm a health educator. And apparently, <laughs> I express my love and support through peer-reviewed research. Um, and she learned this stuff and became healthier than she was at any other point in her life. Uh, and the super short, simple version of this very powerful idea is that uh, stress is a biological event. And like all of our biological processes, like digestion, for example, it has a beginning, a middle, and an end, right? The beginning is sure. when the stress gets activated by something that activates stress, something your brain perceives as a potential threat. This is the adrenaline and the cortisol and the other hormones and the changes in your respiration rate and your heart rate. Your digestion slows down, your reproductive system slows down. Every system in your body, your immune system slows down all in order to shift you into a state where you'd be able to engage in the middle process of it, which is uh, running from the threat in the environment mm -hmm. where we evolve. That's going to be like a lion is chasing you. And the end of it is the part where you get to the It's like beginning, middle and end, just like digestion. If you don't get all the way into it, not so great things nobody's, can happen. Nobody's happy if there's no ending. Let me just put it that way. Exactly. <laughs> I have tried less sort of visceral comparisons no, like laundry. No. You have to go all the way through. You have to like wash, dry, fold, put away. All those steps have to happen or else you end up like getting dressed out of the laundry basket, right? True that, true that. No, I like, think, go ahead. And so, you know, there are times when life is too complicated and difficult and you truly do not have the capacity to get the laundry out of the clean laundry pile and into your dressers and that's fine. And there's going to have to come a time where you do put away all the laundry or else you're just, you've just got a mountain of laundry and the clean gets mixed in with the dirty. And I am now beating this metaphor with a dead horse. The point is <laughs> that the, we need to know what's going to complete the stress response cycle in our bodies. And chapter one is basically an explanation of the biology of this and I think a dozen evidence-based strategies for getting to the end of the stress response cycle. Let's just do three right now or talk about okay. them. Um, obviously one is going to be physical activity because when you're being chased by a lion, what do you do? I you personally run. would run. I can't yeah. speak yeah. for Amanda. I don't know. Most no. people no. would run, and that is what our bodies are designed to do. So you run. And uh, if you actually manage to get away, your stress response cycle will respond to the fact that you ran and uh, release you from the stress response and introduce you into the relaxation response. That's the complete stress response cycle. The running is what indicates to your body that you have arrived in a safe place, and your body is now a safe place for you to be. When people say exercise is good for stress, that is for realsy real. And this is why it's for realsy real. <laughs> realsy real. I realsy love real. We're, we're using that moving forward when things are serious. It's for realsy real, y'all. But we'll say y'all because, yeah. So you're in Georgia, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, but that's not, it is not the case. And there are natural exercisers, people like me who all my life, I have known that if I like go for a bike ride or go rock climbing or go for a run at the end of it, no matter how reluctant I am to put in my shoes, once I do it, I'm going to be so glad I did. Cause I'll feel so much better. Those are natural exercisers. Not everyone is one of those. Amelia is not one of those. 
not Amelia. So far, Amelia, Amelia, mm-hmm. Amanda, right there with you. But you do. Uh, this is Kimberly. I mean, you did say you moved your arms around a lot and made noises. Could that not be a form of exercise? Oh, it absolutely is. This is Amelia. Um, absolutely, my work as a conductor is physically demanding, sure. and yet, and I was always an exerciser because they said exercise is good for you, and I'm a good girl, and I do what I'm told. <laughs> but it never made me feel the way that exercise makes Emily feel. She describes Mm -hmm. biking through the Indiana countryside and the sun shining down and the cows in the fields and that one with nature. I'm like, I have never, ever, ever gotten that from exercise. I get it from music. Yes, I do. But not from biking. My God, no. But see, that's good to know that there there isn't one answer. It depends on your body and your stress and what works best for you. Yeah, that's and one of the reasons why we put oh, 12 solutions. And it's not even just yeah. that not everybody is a natural exerciser. It's that there are cultural, social, psychological barriers to people um, between them and getting the kind of uh, aerobic and anaerobic exercise that would get them into this safe space. Like if you're a trans person going to the gym and using a locker room might Mm-mm. be dangerous and then yeah. getting the exercise is a source of stress in itself so that's mm-hmm. why we have so many other options nice so just to take this I, I love it and then you're like and now i'm gonna fling the dead horse at the metaphor but just to <laughs> sort of take it a, a little bit of a step further obviously as i mentioned before in the intro um we're recording this now and there, there's just been a, it's been a horrible weekend uh for people who are trying to protest and people getting just all sorts of things going on and there's the ongoing pandemic and economic this horrible recession that's that's already here and there's a tropical storm forming in the gulf right now so i haven't heard the horsemen of the four apocalypse (laughs) yet but i'm not ruling this out so when we first had broached the idea of talking with you it was like hey Sometimes there's just a lot of stress in nonprofit and local government work around finding money and getting things. This is, this is you know, a real need. And now I'm like, holy crap, everything is going on right now. And yet if I don't take care of myself and stay strong, then I can't help people access the funds they need to do their important work. And then there's the pressure to everything needs to sort of get back to normal um, I don't know if y'all saw the pictures over Memorial Day, you know, where people were like getting super normal and like water parks and things everywhere. And it was, oh, it was Lake of the Ozarks was, was the so last place I wanted to be, right? Oh, mm, nope. So, so now, and particularly for women, it's sort of like, okay, on top of these things, now you need to probably do the primary educating and caretaking. And then you also need to think about getting back to normal. And you can't see me, but I'm making little air quotes. Mm. So, how should women change what they may have already been doing to break their own cycles of stress during this multiple multi-legged crisis that's going on? Is there a 13th? Does it go up to 13? The solutions that you have? Is there anything? Oh, yeah. The R12 strategies, that's just chapter one of eight. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So in terms of the stress cycle, yeah, this, uh, the problem occurs like when, let me go back. In the environment of evolutionary adaptiveness, our response to stress and the running and the completing of the biological stress cycle was enough to complete the entire stress response. One lion, one escape, 
one cycle. And now we have small cycles over and over, all day, every day, all week, all month. Um, there's the kids and there's work. And maybe there's not traffic anymore. Maybe that's a, a bonus of the pandemic is traffic's never heavy anymore. Mm. Um, <laughs> maybe it is. And then there's, you know, police brutality and misogyny. And yeah, there's a lot of stress. And the thing is that it's all day, every day. And no, we are no longer capable of keeping up with that one thing over and over it's not enough anymore right. and keeping up is the problem that we get overwhelmed and exhausted and yet at the same time we're still worried that we're not doing enough which is when we need to zoom out from the actual strategies of completing a stress response cycle in your body and look at the larger context of where we are receiving our stress from and why we are receiving it and addressing that larger scale system um, we take some of our language from a book called Down Girl, The Logic of Misogyny by Kate Mann. And I want to talk about one of the phrases she uses in that book. Uh, she is a moral philosopher. So she posits a world where there are two kinds of humans with two kinds of responsibilities, moral obligations. The first is the uh, human being who you can tell from the name has a moral obligation to be their humanity, to express, to live their humanity, and to do whatever it takes in order to accomplish that. The other kind of human is the human giver, who has a moral obligation to give their humanity to the human beings. Their humanity, they give their time, their lives, their bodies. And you can probably guess which one the women are. Mm. Yeah. yeah yeah and of course it's not that black and white this is the cartoon version um so emily and i extrapolated that into a, a larger um issue inside an individual might be suffering from what we call human giver syndrome because being a giver is not a bad thing when you're living as a giver inside a system with other givers you're surrounded by people who are going to notice what you need. They're going to feel an obligation to take care of you. And when everyone cares for each other, nobody slips through the cracks. Unfortunately, we do not live in that system. Kate Mann nailed it. We live in a system where human beings are obligated to human givers. Uh, the helpful scenario here is that once you're Other aware, way around. Strike that, reverse it. Strike that, reverse it. <laughs> yeah, we are obligated to human beings. Boom. Yes. yes. Human givers feel obligated to human beings. Thank you so much. Um, and when we feel that obligation, the it's really helpful to recognize what the dynamic is and just think, aha, this person is a human being who feels entitled to my time, my life, my body. And uh, that's incorrect, that my giving is more profitably spent when I give two other givers who are going to give equally back to me. That kind of relationship feels so much better, feels so much more comfortable. And when you recognize whether you are interacting with someone who feels like they're entitled to your time and your life and your body, that's going to feel draining and exhausting. And when you're interacting with someone who feels morally obliged to care for you, to meet your needs, to make sure that you do not burn out, that's going to be a relationship that you can thrive in. So looking at the context yeah. is the next step. Yeah, on that first one you described, I'm like, you are describing motherhood. Yes. <laughs> I have no. a 10 and a 15 year old and I'm like, yep, that's exactly what my daily life feels like sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> so this actually, as you're describing this too, and again, I would just urge um, everyone listening, if you haven't read the book, please do, because then you can also toss around things like the bikini industrial complex 
yeah. talk about that that we'll get to probably later. But when you were talking about the human giver syndrome, I had a follow-up question earlier about sort of in the the nonprofit and local government world where, you know, if you don't, as I said in the beginning, if you don't get the grant or the donor says no, then then really bad things happen. There's a culture there that I think maybe is the human giver syndrome. And Amanda, please chime in if you want, but around, you know, you need to work harder and longer to do more. And if you step back, you're, you're weak or you, you know, it's, it's sort of that world on you kind of thing. So I'm wondering if some of that is human giver syndrome and then some of that is maybe, uh, misunderstanding the, the role of work in your life. Um, but it's a real thing, no matter what we call it, it's a real thing. And I wondered if you could maybe sort of address that kind of work culture dynamic. Yes, when I, I would love that, to do that. Okay. Yeah, okay, Emily, go ahead, do the thing. Uh, I was just <laughs> going to say, that sounds to me like really straightforward, late capitalist grind culture, yeah. where we glorify <sighs> exhaustion and overwhelm and uh, judge ourselves for being rested. Uh, there's a, Especially when you're doing social activism work, yep. uh, there's a sort of like, we will not rest until mm-hmm. whatever it is. And that is a really good way to... Uh, grind yourself down to nothing so that you have nothing left. And if there is nothing left of you, then whatever you're fighting for, they win because there's nothing left of you. We are mammals. It's very inconvenient because (laughs) our mammalian bodies require food and rest, especially sleep. They require love and connection and kindness. They require like movement and that's just the nature of being a human being. We need air and water and those, yes, we have to actually, we calculated it and it turns out on average, you should be spending what proportion of your day on energy giving tasks, including sleep? 42%. Oh. People hate that number. And when I say it, everybody's like, well, that's just unrealistic. No, I love that number. I'm going to use that number. (laughs) Please do. Which, like, it's eight hours, seven to nine hours of that is going to be sleep, right? That's. And then the rest of it is the other stuff. So uh, physical activity for those people who are natural exercisers, physical activity is an energy giving behavior. Uh, uh, the stress reducing conversation with somebody you really love and trust, where just for half an hour, you each talk about like the stuff that's been happening in your day. You just unload and the person listening to you does not try to solve problems, doesn't have an opinion about anything, just says, that sounds really shitty. I'm amazed you dealt with that the way you did. Those people are all jerks and you're amazing and awesome. And we're a team against the world. That's a stress reducing yeah. conversation. Uh, mindful eating, where you actually notice and enjoy the food that you eat to stay alive it does not matter what that food is this is not about making healthy choices this is about whatever you choose to put in your face if it is a brownie that is a personal favorite of mine the main thing (laughs) is like you get you like you sit with it on a plate and you put it in your mouth and you just enjoy the hell out of it that is energy giving Yeah, that's much better for you in terms of rest than like stuffing a salad in your face while you're driving. 
that might have yeah. more like vitamins and minerals, but it's not going to be as restful as a brownie that you take time to pay attention to. Please, everyone, if you do nothing else after listening to this, follow the nap ministry on whatever social media platform works for you. Yeah. This is Trisha Hersey, who is the nap bishop. Uh, she's got a background in public health, and she's also a minister, a actual literal minister, who stages group nap-ins for people of color as commentary on an action against the uh, theft of the labor of Black bodies in America for hundreds of years. Yeah. Uh, rest is not just a public health issue. It is a social justice issue. It's a racial justice issue. It's a gender justice issue, too, because who in a household is expected to sacrifice their sleep in support of everyone else's rest and well-being over the course of a night? That's a gendered task. Uh, when we were reading the research, <laughs> you know the second shift? There's the first shift of sort of like your job, make a paycheck. There's a second shift of householding and childcare. In the research, they use the phrase third shift, for what happens during the time that some people are sleeping and other people are engaging in childcare and medical care and whatever else has to happen. Mm -hmm. wow. the, nap, the nap ministry. I love it. I'm, I've already followed them on Twitter. Yes. Media. She's on it. She's in it. Yeah. That's going to make oh. your life better already. <sighs> I like it. Well, and but, I'm excited to see what she has to say, but I I know firsthand how important sleep is. I'll never forget when I was pregnant with my first child. I'm like eight months pregnant, huge out to here. It's like two o'clock in the afternoon. I'm sitting at my desk and I'm doing that where you, you know, your head starts falling because you're nodding off because you can't keep your eyes open. And my boss walks by and I thought, oh, great. But he came in and he was like, you okay? And I said, I'm just exhausted. I'm, I'm just tired. I said, but it'll be fine. And he goes, close your door and take a nap. I was like, I can't do that. I'm on the block. I'm at City Hall. I can't do this. And he was like, he goes, are you being productive right now? And I said, well, no, not really. He goes, close your door, set a 30-minute timer, whatever, you, lay on the floor, lay on your, I don't care, take a nap. And he goes, then you'll be more refreshed. And he exactly. was right. I was, and it worked. And it was it was so yes. nice to have my boss give me permission to take a nap at work. So it's All just a pragmatic thing to do, right? Yeah. Because yeah. the thing is, if you're yeah. drowsy like that, here's what they don't, you think drowsiness means you're uh like, that's the first step toward falling asleep. No, that kind of drowsiness is the last step before falling asleep. You are 80 to 90% asleep at that point. Are you yeah. doing high quality work when you're 80 to 90% sleep? It's, it's the same no. thing as if you were doing that work when you were like a full bottle of wine into your ear. <laughs> nice. Yeah. And that's not good. So yeah, I shouldn't be writing grants on a full bottle of wine. No. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, you'll wake up the next morning and read what you wrote and be like, oh. <laughs> I, well, Hemingway said, you know, write drunk, edit sober. So you could possibly. <laughs> but Freshen I mean, I don't know that I would turn to him for advice or nurturing <laughs> advice at all. So let me mm -hmm. just scratch that and move yeah, on. Yeah, true. Yeah. Yeah. Well, speaking of advice, um, I will tell you, ladies, like Kimberly mentioned, our book club read this. And at the time I was busy, I didn't get to it. But after Kimberly read it, she just raved about what it taught her, what it learned. And I have quickly learned that when my co-host raves about something, I check it out. Well, sure, um, she, so just calls, she just calls the, the you know, 
public first responders. I don't know, sometimes. When yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, so, but I will tell you, your book, it hooked me from the first two lines. Um, the, the Those lines, they were powerful. They resonated with me. And because I loved them so much, I'm going to share them with our listeners. So this is the opening lines of the book. This is a book for any woman who has felt overwhelmed and exhausted by everything she has to do and yet still worries she is not doing enough. And isn't that every woman that we know, including me, right? <laughs> um, so I just wanted to scream that yes. Then the sad part is even though I know this, I still feel this way. Um, but I personally have discovered that the more I hear my fellow females tell me, oh my gosh, I'm proud of you for doing this, or you're doing this so well, it just lifts me up and gives me more energy to know that even though I'm maybe not doing everything perfect, I am doing a good job. So I've been trying to, on the flip side, unabashedly praising my friends, my neighbors, my coworkers, anytime I see somebody doing a good job to let them know. Um, so what, what are some other ways that you can re recommend that we help lift each other up to help avoid this feeling of, oh, we're not, we're, we're, you know, mommy fail or, you know, just not doing right at work or whatever it is. Yeah, this is Amelia. And I love this question because it really is the answer. Um, we say in the book that the cure for burnout is not self-care, can never be self-care. The cure for burnout is all of us caring for each other. Cause let's talk about that like seven to nine hours of sleep you need every night. Let's say, mm -hmm. let's say you have a family where they are all turning toward you and feeling a, a need to take care of you, to make sure you get the sleep you need. So somebody else decides to take on whatever work of task needs to be done and you get to go to bed and sleep seven to nine hours and you wake up and you feel amazing. And thank goodness for all those people around you who made that happen. And you go to work and you're at the water cooler and you say to your coworker, man, I got nine hours of sleep last night and I feel amazing. And how do mm -hmm. they respond? Good for you. Self-care <laughs> is so important. You know, I was up all night baking cupcakes for Becky's birthday party, but like good for you. Self-care is so important. I think we would add that down here. We might go, oh, how nice. How nice. Exactly. Bless nice. your heart. Bless your heart. Oh. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's in New England that you get that. It's good for you. Um, <laughs> yeah. So now this conversation has become a source of stress. And instead of being 100% nurtured and enriched by your family and the good night's sleep you had, now there's this interruption. So the things we do to take care of ourselves have to exist inside of a context where our care is celebrated for ourselves and for each other. And as a conductor of singers in particular, one of the first things that we learn makes singers sing really well is compliments. Conductors, especially conductors of choirs, tend to shower their singers with compliments. When you tell the choir how good they sound, how great they look, how well they're doing, how far they've come, they sing better because their bodies feel good. Their bodies feel safe. They feel confident. And that makes their bodies ready to make a sound that is the best sound they can make. So if you learn nothing else from a choral conductor, let it be compliments make everyone not just feel better, but really, when I say feel better, I mean their bodies come to a place where they feel safe. And this showering of compliments is a, such an easy way to approach things. I never lie to my choirs, but man, if anything is good, I say it out loud. And that creates mm -hmm. a context in rehearsal and in my relationships with people all around me in every context that just increases the amount of good that's in the world. And if anything 
is going to help the world right now is put something good out there. No matter how small it is, you have increased the amount of joy in the world. And that can't be anything but good. Uh, so very true. That is, oh, and I was taking notes. This is when you know. I was like, <laughs> I know I'm like oh, wait, wait, we're recording a podcast. That was super <laughs> helpful. And I love that metaphor. And it makes sense that if, if people in this chorus are feeling good, their actually bodies are feeling good and they're more relaxed and they can sing or they can write better or they can do whatever it is they need to do. I just, yeah. I love that. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, so I am the Debbie Downer of the two of us co-hosting uh, today. So my next question, I'll just take us back down. Um, so something that Amanda and I have been um, sort of wrestling with this, um, in the, particularly in season two and, of course, now in season three of our podcast is, um, and it's a, it's a smaller slice of the bigger piece of the patriarchy pie that um, you certainly address in your book. And it's how to have oh, but kimberly you're supposed to say patriarchy oh i did i kind of did you hear wait a minute Ugh. there you go there we go i think i just i think i just an, an organ just shifted but i feel good so um so what i was getting at when we we're talking about having these conversations because amanda and i for the first part of our careers we're all about let's write the grant or let's write that donor letter that's going to get the most response. And it is a very competitive thing. One of our guests, Vule, described it as the Hunger Games approach <laughs> where you're like, you know, I'm volunteering as tribute and everyone has to die before I get the money kind of thing. It's not like that, but it is kind of a cousin of that. And really the bigger issue is the system itself. And so as Amanda and I have, uh, I would say matured. We have, we are, our experience, our work experience, we are a lot more comfortable now about addressing that and talking about that. But it's also easier for us now because we are not functioning as employees in a nonprofit or local government. And by that, I mean, we're consultants. So I think when you're a consultant, it kind of frees you to say certain things that you can't say. Absolutely. And it's, especially if you're a consultant from out of town, then it's like, you're just, you know, you're just riding in and here you are. But, but be that as it may, there are some difficult conversations that need to take place, at least on the part of the fund seekers and the grant seekers with the grant givers and the donors. And it's a lot, I will just speak about Atlanta. There's a, there are a lot of foundations that have done a, uh, given away a lot of money over the years and done a lot of good. And then there's some other foundations that it's still very top down. We have these expensive offices and we're going to tell you what you need to do in your community. And it's just, it's very top down. It's yeah. not everyone, but how can we help uh, particularly women have those kinds of conversations where it's like, gosh, no. I, I, Amelia, you can mute. No. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Spoken like a true sister. <laughs> oh, he's just he's just feeling your preach, Kimberly. And he's, feel, I'm, I'm hoping. I'm hoping. It. I just want everyone wrong. to howl about this because it's so wrong. <laughs> but it's hard to have those conversations because, of course, the relationship is not equitable from the very beginning because they're the grant seekers and they're the grant givers. So I just wanted to set that as to what it, what advice 
what, what things could you give to women going forward about how to have these difficult conversations in the least self-damaging way possible? Because there will be, there will be, um, there's not, there will be blood. I don't want to go there. <laughs> there will be damage. There will be damage. I'll say that. <laughs> Uh, I'm going to give uh, a very pragmatic answer that not everyone's going to love uh, because there is an inherent hypocrisy built into it, uh, mm. which is that you have this conversation by turning on your human giver syndrome full out. So for us, being a human, a human giver with human giver syndrome means that you feel it is your moral obligation to be pretty, happy, calm, generous and attentive to the needs of others. You hold space for other people's feelings. You say, mm, mm -hmm, thank you so much for that, Trevor. Thanks for that contribution. <laughs> That's a repetition of what Kimberly said in the meeting 15 minutes ago. Thank you for saying that. That feels really great. I just wonder sometimes, so something I worry about is you make it really feelingsy, you make it very intuitive because people don't feel threatened by women who have intuitions and feelings. They might dismiss it, but they're not going to shut you down because they're afraid because you said, here's what I think. Let me show you the facts. Hmm. Um, very often, the way you persuade people has nothing to do with facts and figures. I mean, you're into you, fundraisers have to talk people into stuff all the time. You're already good at persuasive communication. Mm -hmm. You just recognize that this is a like flashpoint issue that inst especially if you're talking to like white people and especially white men. Well, I'm not going to say especially white men because white women were. We, we do it's it a whole I could, yeah. I could uh, things. No, 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 it's all good. Yeah. <laughs> just like it's a problem. It's um, a problem. They just instantly react with this defensive "fuck you" if mm. you even gesture in the direction of that place. Mm. So you have to approach with this incredible tenderness and caretaking, which is uh, precisely the sort of uh, behavior that gets exploited, right? I think yeah. if you make a choice to engage in this kind of behavior, knowing that that's what you're doing, that you are playing the game like the Hunger Games, and on top of that, we have a whole section of the book that's called Remember Who the Real Enemy Is? It's right. like, the real enemy. I think when you're playing the game this way, you're performing human giver for people who need that from you in order to hear you, but remembering that they are not the enemy. They're just playing the game with you. Just like they got taught to play the game, like everybody got taught to play the game, but they're not the enemy. You're not trying to kill them. You're trying to kill the system that trapped you in this game in the first place. I don't think that's hypocritical at all. I think it's more like um, with great power comes great responsibility thing. I think we're on a superhero journey here and, and I like it. It's like if you have a superpower, if your superpower is the ability to turn on human giver syndrome at will and work it hard and you know you're doing it, then okay. As a sex educator, I think of it as topping from the bottom. Oh, nice. Yeah, you're really running it. You're really running it, even though it doesn't feel like it. I like it. I like a little subversion in my podcast. <laughs> I'm well, I think you have to use the tools that you have available to you. And if that's yeah. what's going to get the job done, then so be it. But I think it's you're making that choice. You're being aware mm -hmm. that you have this tendency that you've been brought up to have this tendency and you're turning it on and then you're turning it off to me that that, that really makes it's just be being mindful almost well being mindful yeah being mindful and knowing that you're going to do this and then you're going to walk away from it and you don't have to live in it but you just 
need to have this conversation. This is Amelia, and I just want to point out that when you perform human giver in this way, it takes a massive amount of emotion regulation, which is going to mean suppressing stress responses. So right. that doesn't mean you're not having stress responses. Right. So you need to go deal with the stress in your body that's a result of this performance at some other appropriate time. Exactly. This is what we call separating the stress from the source of your stress, um, which is also called the stressor. Separating the stress from the stressor. You have to deal with both, and they generally involve entirely separate sets of behaviors. Right. Like one is sitting there in your development lady suit and having a conversation, and the other could be attacking a punching bag in your backyard. Right, exactly. chopping wood, uh, screaming into a pillow, or in my case, sobbing over a keyboard. Oh. Oh. <laughs> well, and I think we have to recognize, too, that we can probably, hopefully, rather quickly deal with our stress, but that stressor... That could take some time. I mean, that's the thing is when you take the time to process the stress to let your body come to the end of a stress response cycle, you get into a calmer, healthier, happier state, which makes you more able to deal with the stressor that is not yet finished. In fact, the good news of this, the ability to separate the stress from the stressor, is that you don't have to wait for the stressor to go away. You don't have to wait till you solve the problem before you deal with the stress in your body. I, one of my major things that made us write this book in the first place was my doctoral program. It took me five years to finish a three-year program because it was so stressful for me and I went super slow. Um, but I didn't Let it be known, to. Amelia is the only woman to finish this program. Wow. Uh, so wow. True. Yeah. Congratulations. Yeah. And it put her in the hospital twice. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Glad that you're better now. Thanks. No, I'm much yeah. better. And <laughs> the like, good news well, is I, th when I first started before I got in the hospital, I was like, I'm just gonna, I'm going to plow through and I'm going to get to the end and then I'll feel better, which is not true at all. But because I could separate the stress in my body from the thing that was causing my stress, which was the doctoral program, even if I had never finished, I could have dealt with all of the stress that it caused me. I didn't have to finish. I never had to reach the end. And honestly, for most of us, the things we're working toward, the problems we're trying to solve of you know, racial injustice and misogyny, these are not things we're gonna see an end of in our lifetime. That's, uh -huh. sorry with the downer again, but like, we're not gonna see the end of racism before any of us no, on this right. podcast are still alive. That's just not gonna happen. So we don't have to wait for utopia before we can deal with the stress in our bodies and so that we can thrive every day that we are alive fighting racial injustice. But can I just say how much I love that your sister has your back when you're here saying, oh, it took me five years, but she's going, but you're the only female to do it. <laughs> yeah. Those are the kind of women I want in my life and men too <laughs> that are like, when you're kind of getting, rah, 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 but they're like, yes, but. <laughs> yeah, that's so. uh, what we call, the title of chapter six is Bubble of Love. Bubbles yeah. about creating the kinds of relationships that give energy instead of draining energy. And that's one yeah. of the things people in your bubble of love turn toward your difficult feelings with kindness and compassion. They say to you the kind things that you are incapable of saying to yourself. Mm -hmm. Oh, Amanda, you've been in my bubble of love before. I think you have totally done that for me. No, I'm serious. <laughs> oh, <my God>. oh. <laughs> So, yeah, that's one of the things I've certainly have learned over the years. I wish I had known earlier in my career the the brilliance of surrounding yourself th with not just your own circle of friends, but like 
learning from ladies who have been there and done that and those things like this that they can teach you that you just don't get when you're 22 you know absolutely so. Yeah. So. I want to say one more thing about the conversations we have and performing human giver syndrome, uh, yeah. human giver, not syndrome, but like just doing it as a choice to take care of the business mm -hmm. you need to take care of. And that is the internal conversation we have about who we are with ourselves. And this turns towards actually what's in chapter eight. It's what we call the mad woman in the attic. Um, mm -hmm. which is a metaphor, of course, and we all have mad women in our metaphorical attic. She's this part of you that grows as you develop as a child and you begin to see that there is a difference, a, a gap between who you are and who the world expects you to be. And the mad woman grows up in this chasm and she decides whose fault is it? Is it the world for being wrong or is it you for not meeting their expectations? And when we fail to get that grant, when we fail to get the approval, when we've done everything we can and yet we fall short, she's either going to turn on us or make us lash out at the world. And turning toward her and having a separate conversation with the mad woman and finding out what she has to say about that failure uh, is going to help you not just recover from success or failure or what that means about who you are, but learn as a habit not to blame yourself, just to acknowledge that that abyss exists all the time, which again, uh -huh. I feel like I've gone down into the dark places. <laughs> but That's the, okay. the good news is that we all live with that abyss between who we are and who the world expects us to be. And when we all recognize that about each other together, again, with like community and loving and caring and bubble of love, we all have an abyss. And when we all recognize and acknowledge it, and we don't blame ourselves for it, it makes it much easier to deal with success or failure neutrally. Mm -hmm. I love that. I don't think this could be, I mean, part of this is getting, if not uh, super crazy about, but acknowledging that there is that dark abyss. I feel like a lot of what passes for self-care in our culture is all, you know, happy, happy, joy, joy. Think and I positive. Think Right. Yeah, it's like you will just, not get that from us. Lift no. yourself out a little bit. I'm like, that is not working. I, you know, and I think it's yeah. just important to say you will be down in the mud and there may be blood and there may be all these different things, but that's to not recognize it is probably maybe another major stressor for that women may feel, you know, if they're trying to live what they think is their best lives, according to what they're being told. It's, um, yeah. So I had to enact this. I have a story I think people will be able to relate to. Uh, so there was this event that I was going to attend. It was in my calendar Sunday at 10 a.m. right there. And the Saturday before at 10 a.m. I get a text saying, hey, Emily, we're ready to start. Are you upstairs? Oh, I, I was oh, at no. home in my pajamas and my car was under a foot of snow. Oh, no. Yes, that feeling. Mm. So, uh, that was a very mad woman triggering moment. There was this gap between who I was and uh, what was being perceived of me. I had failed in this explicit and enormous way and there was nothing I could do to fix it. All I could do was apologize and promise to do better next time, right? So right. I do the things you have to do to sort of make amends for having failed really explicitly and then for... I mean, as soon as I do those things, my internal state settled right down and I felt just fine about myself, right? <laughs> <laughs> no. 
Sure so you did. She said. Half an hour later, I was still like, just like, slammed, like I've got this whip that I'm psychologically beating the crap out of myself. Like I can't believe I made this mistake. Oh my god, I'm so insert adjectives here. Um, <laughs> and I was like, I'm gonna follow my own damn advice. And I literally sitting in my living room, closed my eyes, and I imagined what my mad woman looks and feels like to me. She's this. She's actually Teka, the lava monster from Moana. Oh wow. Yeah. When I saw Teka on the big screen watching the movie Moana the first time, I was like, it, me, that, <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I did what Moana does, which is she turns toward it with kindness and compassion. Here is, I'm going to spoil the crap out of Moana right now. So okay, sorry about that. alert, go for it. Um, <laughs> Moana is trying to restore the heart of Tefiti, which is this uh, green glowing stone with a swirl. And Moana notices that the swirl on the heart of Tefiti matches the swirl at the center of the chest of Teka. And she realizes that she holds in her hand the heart of her own worst enemy. And if she can turn with courage and compassion towards this scary ass lava monster, she can achieve greatness basically. So she tells the freaking ocean, let her come to me. And she strides bravely toward this angry lava monster and she's singing her hair in the braid. I have crossed the horizon to find you. So we're not gonna do the whole thing. We break in in the song all the time, go for it. (laughs) They have crawled in the heart from inside you. But this does not define you. Which is a true description of the mad woman and why she exists. They have stolen the heart from inside you, but this does not define you. This is not who you are. You and you know who you are. So that's turning toward this angry voice in your head with kindness and compassion saying, tell me what you need. Tell me what you're afraid of. How can I help you? It takes so much courage and so much compassion. But if you imagine that your mad woman is not this big, scary monster, but really like maybe it's you as a child when you're two or four or seven or 13, and you have this opportunity to hold yourself in your own lap in the middle of a tantrum and give yourself the loving kindness that you required in that moment, you'll be able to calm that voice, which is not helping you be more productive. It is not making amends for out of wrong you did. You turn toward that difficult feeling with kindness and compassion. You didn't get the grant and it hurts. It hurts so much. This is the uh, self-compassion research we hear so much about, but it's Mm -hmm. so much easier to practice self-compassion when it's just compassion for other people So when you externalize this mean lady in your head as not you, you're not being kind to you, you're being kind to the monster. It's so much easier to do and has as powerful an impact as when it's framed as turning toward yourself. Does that make sense? It does. And it's so beautiful. And I may or may not be crying right now. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly that. I know. Amanda just texted me. I'm crying. I'm like, I'm okay. It's okay. It's okay. Just go with the feeling. That was. I was beautiful. crying when I did it. Like this is this is me literally on a Saturday afternoon in winter, right? L- mm. Sitting on my couch, having this imaginary conversation, mm. crying because I my body is both the compassionate person and the mad woman who's being listened to for the first time in a long time. Uh, so yeah, it, there was a lot of ugly crying. Ugly crying that happened. Mm. That's but the that's, best that's, cry. Crying is one of our twelve evidence-based strategies for completing the stress response cycle. <laughs> yep. 
and it works. Yes, <laughs> it does. <laughs> well, this makes me think of I. Um, so Kimberly and I both teach a lot of like intro to grant writing classes for people that you know probably three days before their boss said, "Hey, you know my grant writer, go figure this out." Right. So a lot of very scared, very overwhelmed people. And um, I was doing a virtual class the other day, and when I get to the end, I'm answering a bunch of questions, and one of the person's questions was. I just started this. You seem to know everything. What point am I going to be there? (laughs) And without even thinking, my answer was, I'm like, oh, no, no, no. Let's be clear. I'm like, I still feel like I'm an imposter. Like I said, I don't think. I don't think I don't think if you're at the top of your game, I don't think there's anybody out there. Now, some people may not admit this, but I just don't think we ever think we're the master of whatever it is we're trying to accomplish. And I was like, cause trust me, you, you know, I may th- say some things that you guys may seem as impressive, but I meet people all the time and I'm like, Oh my gosh, they've written way more grants than I've done. Or they've, they've changed so many more. I wrote a grant for a road. That's not very exciting, but they wrote a grant and you know, they, they they're creating social justice. So oh, they're I, I got to stop you right there, Amanda. I just got to stop you right there. You oh, I, know oh. what you're doing and you're oh, yeah. really good at what you do and you help a lot of people. You know that well and, and i do know that but i also wanted to get a point the cross is like though that we just you do struggle with that like i don't think anybody ever really thinks that they're you know it's it's whether i don't whether it's your mad woman or whatever it is that it's it's a you know it's a hard answer so anyway <laughs> well let's flip the script can i here. just i've been talking a lot but can oh, i just say, love uh, it one thing about the origins of imposter syndrome as a sort of psychological heuristic, uh-huh. it's grounded originally in the idea that uh, women in particular, women of color in particular, in above and beyond just being women, um, experience imposter syndrome as a consequence of being forced to shape themselves into something they aren't in order to conform with other people's expectations so that they can be successful in a toxic environment. They don't feel like imposters because they're really critical of themselves. The origin of the imposter feeling comes from having to uh, act like something that is not themselves in order to be successful in a system that does not want them to be successful. So the origins are in racism and misogyny, not just in, oh, I'm not good enough, not just like beating myself up because I haven't accomplished enough. Like white dudes don't very often walk around talking about like every day I just feel like I'm falling short. And it's not that they're (laughs) never critical of themselves or feel like they're like not meeting expectations. It's just who they are automatically already does kind of meet people's expectations. So Mm -hmm. I I worry that when people talk about imposter syndrome and that feeling of being inadequate and a fake and they're going to be found out, um, we take it to be like a personal failing because of course we take everything to be a personal failing, right? We take the, we take the, I have taken the pandemic as a personal failing. Like it's my personal responsibility to like increase the amount of testing in the United States. I have totally had that irrational thought, but wow. it's an irrational thought. Yeah. <laughs> it's so I just want to make sure that we frame all of these things in the context of like the world is broken. It's not us. We're just trying to cope every day. We're just trying to find moments of joy in a system that really does not want us to. True that. 
And the beauty of that struggle and that search of for joy in a system that doesn't want us to have any is that when we produce any small amount of joy, we have put more joy in the world. And anytime you increase joy, that is a good thing. When you increase joy for you and your little patch of the world, that automatically creates a little perception of joy for all the people around you. And then they have access to joy too. And this is how it spreads through a whole community. Ah. Oh. I like it. Oh, that was beautiful. That was. Um, well, how about we wrap up with a happy note? Um, we talked earlier about the power of rest as a means to make yourself stronger, and you gave a few examples there. Um, so I'm just curious how you all find rest. And the reason I ask is one of my relaxing ways is to read. Um, and really, I just want to feel better about my choice to curl up and read a good book because that's good for my health. <laughs> so yes. what, are, what are some ways be, beyond taking those naps and sleeping that we can find those restful moments? So just, just as a like, hey, this is good for your health, so you should be doing it. Yes, reading is one of those things. If you need like <laughs> evidence that uh, reading is, an, is a strategy for giving energy back, yes, it is. 100% permission to read. Some Excellent. people find like household tasks like cleaning or cooking to be energy renewing. Not me, but no. people are different from each other. Yes. How nice for them. That's not. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> for some people, music <laughs> making is really relaxing. Music making is a thing that for me can really like increase my energy. It's Amelia's job. So it's an energy uh, cost for her. Sure. People mm -hmm. vary. So we and have, whether or not you have, have research, to, oh, to, no, whether or not you have research to support whether the individual thing that you do is good for reducing stress, which I definitely needed. I definitely had to have like a pile of peer-reviewed science in order to feel like it was appropriate for me to use things that are stress-reducing for me. I definitely am in that category also. But you have to know that if you feel that it's uh, enlivening for you, that it nourishes you, anything at all that makes you feel like you have more energy afterwards, that is it. You don't need to have scientific evidence to prove it. You get to just know when you know. That intuition, that knowledge, that feeling, those are true, real, valid, valuable things. And you get to pick. Now, if it helps you at all to know what I actually do, to rest. Journalists ask this, ask us this all the time, actually. All the time. And I tell them the truth. I horseback ride. Nice. I, it's connection with an animal. It's being out in nature. It's physical activity. It's like a win, win, win. And I love it. And I'm terrible at it. Um, and journalists never quote me when I say that because it's not accessible to a lot of people. But the truth is, that's what I do. What journalists do quote me when I lie uh -oh. <laughs> and I say, you know what I do is I, I connect with my sister and we spend time together and support each other. And that is also not really a lie. It's also true. But that's the kind of thing that I guess people feel like is accessible and tells a great story. But honestly, you have to do the thing that works for you, whether or not it holds up to examination by someone else. I like it. Same here. Horseback riding, though, is also an evidence-based strategy for. Yeah, it is. It is. <laughs> I love it. You're like appealing. It's appealing to feelings and hard data. It's just meeting a lot of needs for me right now, and I just want to thank you for that. That is actually like the primary hope that our book accomplishes. It's appealing to feelings and hard data. You got it. Nerd is in your bio, and it's just a speaking to all of us grant nerds who are all about the data and the research. And so 
Thank you. 100%. And we all know that there are those people who can hear the numbers all day and not be convinced. Exactly. This is true. So that's why we always tell people when you're writing your grant, you want data, but you also got to have those heart tugging stories and Absolutely. examples too. So to catch, no matter who your reviewer is, you have made them happy. Look, if you can sing a Moana song to them in the oh. grant, that's really how you get there. I'm just, um, I'm just going to take that portion of the recording. And I'm just going to listen to it every night as I drift <laughs> off to sleep. I, I did reference the circle of life by Elton John in a grant application once. Nice. So there you, can, you can bring music into your grant ap application. It has been done. So <laughs> well, Emily, I thought so. Um, Emily and Amelia, thank you both so much for sharing your insights on stress and how by understanding the stress cycle in our own bodies, we can work with it and truly take care of ourselves. Um, and I have, immensely enjoyed our time together today oh, yes. i'm sure kimberly too yeah so everybody listening should get a copy of burnout the secret to solving the stress cycle what's the best way for people to connect with the two of you and learn more about all of this these days certainly up until the election we are doing a podcast that we call the feminist survival project 2020 which is a podcast for feminists you know who feel overwhelmed and exhausted by the um mm -hmm. A putrid hellscape that is 2020. <laughs> we anticipated that 2020 was going to be bad. We did not know how right we would be. And by the way, I looked up what the four horsemen are, and I think I think we have seen them. It's uh, plague yep. Yep. and yep. Uh, famine war. and war and conquest. I don't know. We're pretty close. <laughs> That's true. We're we're closing in on conquest, and famine is just a season away. I think so. Yeah. So, like, it's bad, which is why we're making the podcast. I needed to do something to feel like I was contributing and making the podcast is uh, what helps me to feel like I am participating in moving us in a direction regularly. So, and Amelia, every time there's a very dark topic, uh, Amelia writes a song about it. Oh. So there'll be an entertaining song at the end of uh, the most difficult episodes, like the trauma episode and the abyss episode. Oh. So where can, they, where can they find um, they being mean <clears throat> me? Where can I <laughs> find the podcast you speak of? It's on all the regular podcast platforms and feministsurvivalproject.com. Lovely. Yes. Well, thank you so much. And um, I know I'm going to be checking out a new podcast, which <laughs> is fabulous. So <laughs> nice talking to you both. You thank too. You so thank much. you. Thank you again to our season three sponsor, D.H. Leonard Consulting and Grant Writing Services. We appreciate their support in making grants less stressful. Visit their website, dhleonardconsulting.com to learn more. Remember, there is no specific college degree in grant writing or fundraising, but there are a lot of good people with experience to share, training programs, and other ways to learn. We would love for this podcast to be part of your professional development lineup. And you know what else we'd also love? We would love for you to interact with us, follow us on Twitter, drop us a line, tweet us a tweet. Follow us on Twitter at Funding Heyday. That's at Funding Heyday, H-A-Y-D-A-Y. Stay tuned for upcoming episodes this season. In two weeks, we are talking leadership and building consensus with the exceptional Mark Pittman. Until then, my friends, be well and do good things. Bye now. Bye. Bye.